Christ is risen. Alleluia. Hopefully you grabbed a, uh, a sheet that I try so hard to, like, to match liturgically the color of your handout with the, with the season. And this is last week's color, but today we're red. And I mentioned a little bit in the sermon uh, celebrating the, the festival of St. Philip and St. James today. And uh, whenever we have, here's a little trick. Like at my old church, many of you might have even grown up with this. In fact, I would actually bet most of you grew up at a church where communion was only like once a month, maybe. And then I mean, we're trying, it, it, it started with obviously communion every time the church was together. And then somewhere in like the post age of enlightenment, pietism kind of set in where there is um, this strong association between feelings and faith. So it's like if I, if I feel like on Christmas Eve, you go to Christmas Eve and you, and you, have, you sing Silent Night by Candlelight and you have this emotional experience and like, oh, this is great. And so you tie that emotional experience though, if you, if you sang Silent Night every single week, you kind of lose that emotional experience. So when you do something rarely, especially when there's spiritual significance, it, like, it gives you that tingly feeling maybe. So communion had unfortunately been reduced to that in a way. So a person would say, I know I have faith because I feel it. Um, or I like the Lord's Supper. It says, I would like to, we like the Lord's Supper to be rarely observed because it's special, like singing Silent Night by Candlelight. Well, what makes it special, though, is not how often it's observed. It is what it is that makes it special. And when Jesus instituted it, he said, do this often. Um, and so you've seen, like really in the last 50 years especially, in a slow attempt to have it more often, but you gotta deal with the slow catechesis of your people, because not everybody's on the same page. And we're blessed to have it here every Sunday at every service, but it hasn't always been the case here and, and elsewhere. Anyway, I mention all this because uh, every pastor is like, you're trying to figure out a way to have the Lord's Supper more often without getting fired. <laughs> so for me, I was like, we're gonna have, we're gonna have a, we're only gonna have the Lord's Supper on the first and the, whatever it was, the first and the third Sunday of the month, um, unless there's a feast day. It's surprising how many feast days you can find if you're looking. <laughs> Feast of Saint something, I don't know, or have a feast day, you know? Have the Lord's Supper more and more often. And then quickly, everybody's like, well, if it, if it is what it is, and it forgives sins, and I'm a sinner all the time, why don't we have it more often? I'm like, now we're ready to go. But the people got to get there, right? So um, that was kind of my, my first use of feast days was more of an abuse or an excusing. But, but now it really is good to, to recognize the confession of the of the apostles in this case, the apostles who are preaching the faith and especially those who martyred, who are are martyred for the faith. Today's today's St. Philip and St. James are are, um, relatively unknown. I won't say obscure, but like James, this is James the Lesser, he doesn't have a lot of speaking lines in the New Testament. And uh, Philip does. He's um, not the same Philip from Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It's Philip, the apostle, who goes to Nathaniel and says, come and see. And Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Galilee? And he says, come and see. Um, so he has a few helpful lines. Really, we, 
it's just the following in the tradition history of the church to remember these saints who have gone before us. And, and really always important to point out that, the, and as I, do, as I do in the sermon today, that we have to be mindful of our, of our context in greater Christendom, that the word saints isn't understood to be the, to, isn't understood in the same way in all circles, right? So obviously um, you hear like people praying to saint whatever, and you'll have, in certain churches and certain belief systems, you'll have like, if I pray to saint something, then he's gonna protect me. So there's like a saint for travel and a saint for police officers and all these different things where there's almost this intercession made to the saint for a person as though the saints are listening or that the saints can do anything. Within the theological system, it would be like the saints can intercede to Jesus with a little bit better clout, you know? Um, like if you, want, if you want to get me to do something, you could ask me and I'd probably say no. If you, add, if you can persuade Mandy, it's gonna happen. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But the, the idea is they'd have a better, a better ear um, with Jesus. That's, that's in the theological system. Hence the prayer to Mary, for example. Uh, you also have this infusion of the, the concept of, we would say purgatory, which popularized in our Lutheran circle history with indulgences. So this, this concept is, to oversimplify it quickly, the, there were people, like you must be this tall to get into heaven by, by, as far as your, your, how, many, how many good works you have. Yeah, your bar, boop, 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 boop. You have to accumulate this many good works to get into heaven. Um, but not ever, no, hardly anybody has that except for like, obviously Jesus, Mary, Peter and Paul, like whoever the history deems to be super high good works. Well, they only needed this much to get in. They had extras. So they took the extra and they put it into a bank, treasury of merit. That's what it's called, the treasury of merit. So the idea was that all of us are down here, right? Uh, so, I, but I, so I don't go to hell. This is an important distinction to make in the Catholic system. Jesus died to get you out of hell. You're baptized. Um, so you don't go to hell with faith in Jesus, but you don't get into heaven. You, don't, you have to be pure to get into heaven. So I'm not in hell, but I'm kind of not quite there yet. So I'm, I'm going to purgatory, which is where that whole system idea came from, where you are gaining merit to achieve, so you're, how do you purify metal? Fire. So this idea of purification, being purified in purgatory until I am deemed good enough, pure enough to get into heaven. But you know, fire isn't the most comfortable thing to endure. And so it'd be nice if you could get somebody out of here quicker. Well, you had all these extra up here from like St. Paul. What if I could buy St. Paul's extras and give it to Aunt Susie and get her out of purgatory. And there's the system, right? So typically saints are people who are on this side. And that's the association for a lot of people of what a saint is just from abuses within the church. So we have to be mindful that um, when we say saint, it means holy ones. It comes from the Greek, holy ones, um, which you are. We are holy. We are made holy by our baptism, uh, made holy through faith in Christ. And yet we remain in our sinful flesh. 
But often you'll hear pastors refer to their people as saints, like dear saints of Bethany, if I were writing you a letter, dear saints of Bethany. Um, so that we can call each other saints and we recognize that we're still though in our sinful flesh. After we die, we're, we're freed from our sinful flesh and there we sing for all the saints who from their labors rest. So they, to be fully sainted and removed from our sin. Well, the church recognizes in its history uh, particular saints who have been used in maybe exceptional ways in the proclamation of the gospel, um, especially in the first, in the earliest centuries of the church, right? So we don't, like, you, there's, there's feast days and there's called these, um, what's that second tier day? Um, the like recognition, I forget what it's called, where you'd remember like Martin Luther. Well, he's not a saint by the church's historic definition of the term, or the, you, but we'd say we could still recognize the day that Martin Luther died and recognize that he did good stuff for the church. And by the way, he would be pretty ticked off right now if he knew we were talking about him instead of Jesus, so let's get to the point, right? And that's how it is with the saints. We're kind of focusing on um, how the Lord worked through them. That's also the case for, um, for our own funerals. Um, we're, we're careful that when, we're, when we have a, a service in the Lord's church, um, we're not here to talk about Joe. Um, we are here to talk about the, the, the Lord that Joe confessed, but also the way that the Lord used Joe. So we give thanks to God for Joe, our father, grandfather, brother, the banker, whatever his vocation was, all these things we can rejoice in together, all through the perspective, though, of Everything that Joe did that was good wasn't his doing. So we're giving thanks to God for all of these things. And so it is too with the saints. So we recognize the things that they did and give thanks for that. Any questions about any of that? Not even on the handout yet, so let's get to it. The cost of following Jesus. So we're, at, we're wrapping up chapter nine. And um, so remember the context, we have to think back to like pre-Easter or so, uh, dig back a little bit. Maybe I'll, start, I'll just start with verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face, this is chapter nine, verse 51. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And this is this like huge shift in the gospel of Luke. Jesus is now setting his face to go to Jerusalem. Prior to this point, he had been focusing on catechesis and avoiding too much attention being brought to himself because he didn't want to be killed prematurely. He wanted to be sure to catechize the disciples and so forth. And now marks his transition of Jesus sets his face, he comes off the Mount of Transfiguration and sets his face to Jerusalem. And there's a shift in the gospel. He sends his messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations. We talked about the history with the Samaritans last time. People did not receive him because his face was set to Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, James and John, not the James that we recognize today, so James the Greater, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? It's like, you wonder if like, if they got cut off in traffic, how they would also respond. Road rage. <laughs> the road rage. The sons of thunder. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So if you remember, we had kind of been building this confusion that the disciples had between seeing the 
the Lord's way, the Lord Jesus's way is a way of glory and power versus suffering and weakness. And they're always pushing for that power. And so when um, they're arguing about who's the greatest, um, they're in this situation, they wanted this, the fire to come down because they didn't just bow down and, and, and make way for the disciples. And Jesus is like, no, the wrath of God is not going to be poured out on them right now. It's going to be poured out on me on the cross. So he turns and rebukes them. And then today, we get some other important teaching regarding the cross that is to be borne by disciples of Jesus. So verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And made famous by the end of Sister Act 1. Anybody? That's a throwback right there. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me, go, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. A lot of stern law in this chunk, and it really some coming up here. But first, with Jesus having, uh, so foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So he recognized not just that Jesus didn't have a home, but it was his home is not of this world. So he's never really... He's never really at, at home here. And we, we should and do recognize this even about ourselves. There's this, there's this disconnect. That really, we don't really, even though the Lord made the earth for us, ever since the fall into sin, it doesn't really work. And if you have, if you have everything that the world promises that would be good, you still don't actually, you're not fulfilled. This isn't home. Uh, we, know, we recognize that ultimately sin has destroyed everything. And so it is with our Lord Jesus. He's not really at home here. He has a home, but it's just not here in this place. The son of man title is a very significant one, recognizing his, his uh, taking on our humanity, being true God and true man. But it is a strong messianic title from the Old Testament. So he, when he's called the son of man, calls himself the son of man here, he's it's, a, it's one of those dinging back to the Old Testament saying, that's me, ding, son of man that was talking about the Old Testament, the Messiah, it's me. Um, let's see here. Yes. Um, no, only the thing, I, I think, unless I'm misunderstanding you, I think it has more to do, especially with, in, the, in this, the context of the foxes have holes and birds of the, so like where they actually live, where they dwell. So not lay in the sense of rest. Yeah, good. To another, he says, follow me. Oh, by the way, um, even though we have nowhere to lay our head, I mean, the fact is we do. We all have a place to lay our heads. So it's like, wait a second, you're saying if I'm fully in Jesus, then I have to like get rid of my house and no, that's not, we, but we recognize the temporality of these things 
and we give thanks to our Lord. We see, in fact, and this will, be, this will be continually unfold in these next few verses, we recognize all these things that we enjoy now are a gift from the Lord, including the house where we lay our heads. So it, while we recognize that it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful gift from our Lord, but it is temporary. This isn't eternal. So this is a, it's a good thing to remember like when you start going through junk in your basement <laughs> and you're like, that stuff you just can't let go of. It's, it's a good, when you talk to people who, is, who are like cleaning out their mother-in-law's basement after she dies and that everything is just what? Chunked. But it wasn't chunked before then because it was, it was special. It had, it had value to her. And in that sense, I mean, there's, that, was, that in and of itself becomes the reason for keeping that stuff around. If it gives grandma joy, it's gonna do more damage than good to throw it away now. But it does, it's, it's a reminder to all of us when you're throwing away someone else's junk that this stuff is just so temporary. All the stuff that we value, that we treasure so closely, it's, it has no lasting value. And yet, what kinds of things consume our time and our interests so often? It's those things, right? So, but we also, again, recognize that these are good gifts. We're thankful for our home. We're thankful for our car and our stuff and the stuff that we enjoy, but we just got to keep it all in the perspective of its temporality. So he says, follow me. This is what disciples do. They follow. But he said, Lord, let me go. Let me first go and bury my father. Seemed to be a pretty good thing to do. I'm a son. If my father died, I want to go do this good thing for my dad. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. <laughs> uh, it's not really what you picture Jesus saying. Oh, I'm sorry your dad died. In fact, let me go raise him up or something, you know. <laughs> he said, Let the, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So it's good for us to love our family and our neighbor. And Jesus has done this on a few, a few particular times in the, before and after this where we recognize that it's good to love our family and our neighbor, but ultimately, though, not more than Jesus. Jesus. So, but we recognize, so like, when you, especially when you teach the first commandment, this comes out. Fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Love God above all things. Does that mean I can't love my wife? I can't love my dad, my children, right? And if I do love my children, are they, have they now become idols? So I have to stop loving my family, who are the very ones that God has given me to love, right? So we have to keep our love toward our neighbor in its proper place underneath. So we would actually say, I'm given to love my parents, my wife, my children as a gift from the Lord. And as such, I, I, my, my heart overflows from them. So we'd say, well, you don't love your children more than you love God. That's just a bad dynamic. You would say, I love my children with all my heart because they've get, they're given to me by God. So that's the perspective, the flow there. But, so, but here he's, he's like, hey, he wants to go bury, he wants to go bury his, his dad. And he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Does, I mean, so one, we recognize this, the, the death of this world. And what he's sending out the disciples to do is to speak life in the face of death. We don't know what all played out here, what the greater context was, but Jesus is certainly using it for a teaching moment for us to put things in perspective of the preaching of the gospel that goes forth is this message of life in a world full of death. 
um, it was a it was a, a um, impactful thing for me. Like in my, I was considering being a pastor. I think my height, somewhere in my senior year, maybe I was talking to the recruiting guy from Fort Wayne Seminary, who's incentivized to get me to go there, by the way. <laughs> so um, he was saying how you know in the, the history of Christ, the history of really Christianity or the whole like from the first century on, especially there's like these main vocations. You have law medicine, religion. There's like the three main fields of academic like pursuits. And ultimately the law and medicine don't actually, they're not gonna keep winning, right? There is a point where there's only so far medicine can go. There's only so much justice that law can give. And ultimately there's this eternality that the Lord is after through the preaching of his gospel. And that's, by the way, a word that's not just unique to my vocation, but to all of, all of ours, all of yours, is this, the vocation that where God has you serving your neighbor right now is, is excellent and, he's, and it's honored highly as he's working through you to serve your neighbor. But also though, we, we wanna be mindful of the, the power of the gospel and the significance of the gospel that ultimately, um, I think like Kirsten Schaefer's dad is uh, Dr. Gerhard Mundinger. It's a very intimidating name. Um, he was a heart surgeon for years and years. And he would always like, he would tell people like, everyone who's going into open heart surgery, they're pretty sure they're gonna die, they're freaking out. And he's just like, okay, even if I fix this, which I will, you're still going to die. So let's talk about that. Oh, what, a, what a great position. He had a captive audience, you know. But it's true for all of our vocations where if, we're, if the Lord opens up, it gives us an opportunity to speak the gospel to the dead, that is those without the, the joy of eternal life, then we have the joy of speaking that. Kevin, you had a question earlier? Sorry. Yeah, so. Right. But even, what's funny here is that, like, on the face of it, when you're reading these, these, these are especially hard teachings because it's Jesus Himself who's teaching us to love our neighbor. So when it's like, oh, let me go say bye to my to my extended family at home, that's a show of love, is it not? And so when Jesus is like, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Like, I can't, what? We recognize, these are one of these paradoxes of law and gospel in the Christian life. We need to be told the law of priorities as disciples of God, where, and it's always creeping back in, into all of our, into all of our vocations, the, our sinful selfishness is always creeping back in, our prioritization of self and our own self-desires over that which God has given us. And so we're, ne- we're never free of that. The Lord's speaking that law to his disciples here, but also to you and me. Not to say you can't go say bye to people, like, and, what, and really, pra- in a practical way, this is, 
he's given this to his disciples that he's, that are coming up to him. I mean, there, there's a conversation he's having with them. So not everything here is a one-to-one correlation to your, your experience, but the things that we can learn from it are these law of priorities. Um, and the, the, the um, I mean, this would, this would be a cheap shot, I guess, but like, hey, are you coming to church? No, we got soccer practice, which is a communist sport. <laughs> it's no accident that only the communist countries are always really good at soccer until recent history. Yeah. Yeah, to love, to, to, um, to love our neighbor rightly in our Lord's way was to, is to see them as a gift from our Lord. And in that way, too, it also allows a person to, to walk away. I mean, think about it. From Jesus' eternal perspective, he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. He's moved to weeping by death, by the way. Yeah. And yet he's able to also recognize they're going to die anyway. Let's go. And by the way, I'm going to raise them up again. That's why I got to get over here to the cross to get this thing going. So he sees it in perspective. And so we're able to, it's a hard prayer that we pray when we, like in Luther's evening prayer, morning prayer, we commend all things to the Lord or my body and soul in all things. It includes my loved ones who are dying. Um, I, I, I've told you guys this before, but like for a new parent, we got, Mandy and I still joke about like we had Annabelle, everything you read, and every, every pack and play, whatever, everything you put together has like 17 pages of warnings. And everything's going to cause death. And then everyone's telling you about like sudden infant death syndrome and like all these different things. And ultimately you're like, so just to be clear, we can put the baby down carefully in this crib and she can just die? And there's nothing that I did to cause it? Oh, that's right. She doesn't belong to me. She's the Lord's, and he'll take her when he wants her. But for now, I'm given to love her. I commend her to him. And as long as I have her as gift, I'm going to serve her as a parent, you know? And so it kind of gives us this proper ordering of things in all of our lives. It certainly doesn't make it, doesn't make it easy to lose our loved ones, right? In fact, that's why it's so hard to lose our loved ones, because you love them, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't cry as much. When people you don't like die, you're like, eh. <laughs> But, but there's, there's something you go through even at funerals. Like for all, I have these funerals, especially like when I first got here, I knew no one. And there's a funeral. And I, I'm not moved by this person's death, except for the wife is losing it. It hurts to see other people hurt, right? So like that's that love for our neighbor, but it's ultimately under, only rightly understood in Priorities. So they're giving me, they're, I'm given to serve my neighbor as a gift in these various vocations. Um, 
So we do struggle. The nature of our faith is that we struggle with this ordering of things, like putting the hand to the plow and looking back isn't fit for service in the kingdom of God. Um, so we're, we see our life as, as a vocation of service to the neighbor. And then, I mean, yes, you realize that sometimes. But most of the time, you don't. You just, it's just a job. So you wake up and you do, follow the routine. You go through the nine to five. You do the thing to serve, the, to, to work, to make the paycheck, file the TPS reports, whatever. <laughs> but ultimately, it's kind of disconnected from service to my neighbor. And so the Lord Jesus like injects into our life the view of vocation, seeing my neighbor as a gift to serve. And that's me putting my hand to the plow. But then I forget, you know, the, the service, that I'm, it becomes selfish and frustrating and all that. And then that's the sinful flesh. And then I'm, I'm drawn back into seeing it as a gift and vocation. That's this ongoing struggle in the Christian life that we have. Um, one quick thing, I, when he says uh, the kingdom of God, remember, so the, this proclaiming, the, he's sending the disciples out to proclaim the kingdom of God in verse 60, and then again in 62, uh, no one who looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I mean, the kingdom of God is like this, you think about this powerful thing, and yet when Jesus is king, what is his crown made out of? The thorns. So he is the king who wants to be known not according to the power of this world's kingdoms, but only through the suffering of the cross. It kind of flips everything on its head. Now, if there was anything I wanted to focus, let's flip over to chapter 10. Is there any lingering questions on 9? So let's look at chapter 10 here. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. After this, after just totally blasting, here's, how, here's the way of the cross. Deny self, take up your cross, and follow me. Crosses aren't like convenient things, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross. Uh, no one puts their hand to the plow and looks back as fit for service in the kingdom. And then, he, and then 72 others are jumping in, okay? So he sends out the 72, sends them on ahead, two by two, like the Old Testament way of, of uh, witnesses, you know, like, so a, a testimony, a single testimony didn't carry the weight, the same weight as two people. So there's always gotta be the, the witness of two, other, of, of two people. Sent them into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So they're like, they're like going out in advance, sprinkling the seed. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Therefore, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. At which point, <laughs> right, wait a second. <laughs> as what? As what? In the what? Uh, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. That might ring in some of your ears. It's one of the ongoing collects of the church for the increase of the holy ministry. The harvest that is plentiful is that picture of the, the grains growing and they're all ripe for the harvest, but the laborers are few. But therefore pray earnestly to send out laborers into his harvest. That's not, for one, it's not just that there's churches who need pastors. That is the case. And those of you who are here for the call, uh, the call service on Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday? 
Like we saw there's like still 30 parishes. You didn't get a pastor. And we know there's tons of vacancies. But that's just our, our small blip on the radar of a church body. And that's just the congregations. But the harvest is not limited to churches. But it's all, of, it's all people, right? So the Lord has, he's sending out laborers out into the harvest. And the laborers is also, it's rightly understood to be referring to the pastoral office of the ministry. But it's not only that. It is also you. Because what is it when you speak the gospel to your neighbor? Is that not laboring in the kingdom? Is that not bringing, bringing forth the harvest? So one big thing here, though, is there's, a, I don't like this word earnestly, therefore pray earnestly. It's not there in the Greek. It's just, it just says, therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. And like in some situations, pray can be rendered like fervent prayer. But when you say, when you see pray, for, when you see the difference in pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest, that's like recognizing that the Lord is the one who sends laborers. But pray fervent, pray earnestly, has to be like, oh man, I'm worried about this thing. We gotta get, you gotta get praying. There's, there's people who need a pastor. You better get after it. Which all of a sudden changes God from the one who gives faith to the guy on his lazy boy waiting for you to work salvation as if people are gonna go to heaven without him, right? So you gotta keep that in mind that ultimately the harvest belongs to the Lord. The laborers belong to the Lord. Um, He's the one who sends out the laborers. And yet we are still given to pray for the laborers to be sent out, both by way of within the church and the greater mission of the world, but also within our own vocations that the, the gospel would be echoing in all of our lives. But yeah, that, that, that you'll hear the harvest is plentiful, laborers are few. That's one of the ongoing collects that the church uses to pray for churches and seminaries. But we don't wanna ever despair. There's no emergencies in the Lord's church. So like, it's not, it's not like your stuff that's spiraling out of control. We're given to often think that way, especially with our country. And we always are given to, we're all, we're all very narcissistic, you know, like this is the worst it's ever been now. And super duper panic. And that, there's, there's I mean, according to our sinful flesh and, our, and really according to our flesh in this world, there is, there's constantly reasons to panic, reasons to worry. And yet, according to our life of faith, there is no reason to panic. The Lord's church does not panic. We don't worry about these things. So the Lord gives, he gives laborers. He puts people where he wants them. He has the gospel go forth. He ha- he's the one who brings forth faith from the preaching of that gospel. So he's just called us to be faithful stewards and giving out the gifts, to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel, sowing the seeds, casting the net. But that, what that does is it shifts it from this sense of urgency to like, there's, there's so many, there's, so many people who are going to hell right now and it's because you didn't put a couple extra bucks in the LWML box. And yet, it's a really important box. We wanna support the missionaries, these, the laborers who are preaching the gospel, right? So it just gets it in priority. Now I'm motivated not by fear when I put my dollar in the mite box or whatever. I'm motivated not by a sense of urgency. Also not this false sense that like I somehow accomplished something. 
but rather it is, hey, this money belongs to God anyway. I have this opportunity here to help this particular mission. There's no shortage. If any of you ever made the mistake of like giving money to something, like a, like a college, what do you then receive in the mail for the rest of your life? <laughs> There's no shortage. There's no shortage of need. And that's true for missionaries. Like it's true for church if you give the money to Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, you'll go on a list that ends with, they're like, they just, they just carpet bomb you with endless opportunities to rid you of the idol of money. Uh, and yeah, well, but, those are, but it's ultimately good, right? I mean, if you have, if you have, the, if you have the ability and interest to support it, then, then good. But it puts it again as by way of steward. The Lord has given me these gifts and I can use them as I see fit. You get to pick what gives you joy. And it's also the same for your time not just your money, but like how you spend your time. You, the Lord's given you so many different opportunities. You can't be everywhere at once. So you can go coach your kid's baseball team on Saturday morning. Oh yeah, I could do that, but the grass needs to be mowed at church. Maybe I'll do that instead. And now you're pitting these things against one another. Yeah, who gave you those kids to go coach, right? So we're not pitting these things against one another. We're not creating any kind of tension or sense of urgency, except for, I mean, if the grass needs to be cut on Sunday and you're the one who signed up for it, you should probably do that. But that's not a divine urgency. That's not like sin is somehow involved there. That is a rabbit hole. Let's get back on track. (laughs) Verse three, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, which recognizes the true persecution that's out there in the world. For, the, for especially these disciples who he's sending out, he recognizes that there are lambs being sent out for slaughter. Uh, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. <laughs> Just, oh, hey, John. Why? Why do you think that is? This is purely speculative. It doesn't say. Why no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals? We ran into this earlier. What? Yeah, it's emphasizing the dependence on the Lord to provide for them. Hey, this isn't an ongoing, this is not an ongoing message for the church. He doesn't give this to, like, the new, like in the book of Acts when the, the disciples are going out. Paul is first to say, if a man's not going to work, don't, don't let him eat. This is unique to this particular thing. Yet we also do see how God is protecting and de- de- providing for them. Greet no one on the road. I mean, maybe, I don't know. It's like... Well, here's a, here's a really offensive example. Church starts at 11. And between here and there, I have to run past a lot of you. And sometimes I'll make a mistake and say, hey, Rich. Then I'm, I'm going to be late. Just count on 11.05, you know. <laughs> but, but, but I think maybe that's a little bit of it, you know. You're like, this like, don't be distracted from where he's sending you. And they're not out too long. They come back, as we'll see in the coming verses. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. So it's not just, it's not just I hope everything's going well here, but the divine peace, the same peace that we would, we would see on Easter evening when Jesus shows up, peace be with you. The Old Testament is divine shalom, peace with God. Um, peace with God restored through the cross. 
So here they are sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves. They're completely emptied of themselves. They bring nothing with them and they're set up to be destroyed by the wolves. And yet the Lord protects them. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. That is one who receives the gospel. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. They're going to provide for you. Do not go from house to house. That is, don't jump around trying to find who's got the better vittles. But stay with where you are. Whenever you enter a town, this is interesting. Which I didn't catch until this, this time around. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. They're, they're being sent out into Gentile territories. And they very well could go to a Gentile home. And what could be set before them? Pulled pork, sand, yeah, bacon. <laughs> How could you not provide bacon? That would be unloving not to give them. Um, so we, and this, is, this must have been a hard thing. This is why Jesus said it. Eat what's set before you. Because there's going to be stuff put before you that, that you're not really going to be used to eating. And don't offend them. In Acts, he, clears, he cleans this up with a vision to, to St. Peter on uh, what God has made clean, don't, don't, um, don't call unclean. So eat bacon, and eat shrimp, you know, bacon-wrapped shrimp, the worst of the worst for the Jew. <laughs> Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. This is the key. So think catechism. Uh, so in the Lord's Prayer, our Father, heart in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. How does God's kingdom come? As we learn in the catechism, God's kingdom comes by itself, without our prayer. That goes back to the harvest is plentiful thing. God, it's his kingdom. Same with thy will be done. God's will is done without your prayer. It's not like God's up there waiting for you to pray the right thing. But he actually delights in it. He has us pray for thy kingdom to come. But we pray in this petition that as God's kingdom, ultimately that the Holy Spirit would go forth and work faith. So God's kingdom is going forth wherever the word is going forth. And that's what the, 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 the apostles are given to say when they're going into these homes, speaking God's word. That's what brings God's kingdom. That's how he's able to say the kingdom of God has come near to you. Where the king goes, the kingdom goes. And where God's word is proclaimed, there the king is. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, and then we get some fun law here, even the dust of your town, so go out into its streets, so make a scene. Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I will, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, the question that I bring to you is, why would they bother saying anything at all? They could just leave. And yet, how does the Lord bring repentance? What word does he use? The law, right? So it is with Nineveh. So Jonah goes into Nineveh and he says, this house is going to be, or this, they say house? is going to be destroyed in three days or whatever. And then the entire city of Nineveh repents in sackcloth and ashes. And Jonah's like, duh. I wanted to see him burn, baby. <laughs> so it is here. I mean, we got to be mindful that when, whenever the apostles are speaking at all, it is, the, it is God's word that brings forth fruit. So even when it's these condemning words of, of hopeless judgment, to I wipe my feet off against you, the kingdom of God has still come near to you. You guys are going to be 
worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. That is a message of law, stern, fear-causing law that the Lord still uses to bring about repentance. Otherwise, they wouldn't say it at all. It's a helpful thing to remember here. Um, Woe to repentant cities, verse 13. We can wrap up. Yeah, I'd like to get one more chunk here. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, the woes. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So Tyre and Sidon are like notorious um, Gentile uh, associated with sin. So think like Las Vegas. Not to strike too close to home to those of you who just moved back here from Las Vegas recently. Um, but, like, but that's the idea. That's why he picks Tyre and Sidon because they're notorious. And that these, they've, they've seen these mighty works of Jesus, these miracles that are done, yet they're still rejecting the gospel. It'd be more bearable in judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. By the, well, by the way, Jezebel is from Sidon the worst queen of all time. Never, na- never name your children Jezebel, FYI. Not a good one. Name your cats Jezebel. <laughs> and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Again, why bother saying it if it wasn't actually bringing about repentance? Now, it might also be true because it's, it's still the, the law carries with it the judgment of God for those who don't repent. And yet, it is also the word itself that brings about the repentance. But that just helps us think through of like, okay, what's it, what are they trying to do here? Why are they saying these harsh things? The one who hears you, hears me. So when they're standing out on the streets and saying, woe to you, it is ultimately the voice of God who's bringing faith and repentance according to his will. The one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And there we have... Again, the office of the keys. So we talk about the one, so the one who hears you hears me, as we have it in, the, in Luther's small catechism, that when the sins, uh, regarding the office of the keys, it's whenever sins are forgiven on earth, they are forgiven in heaven. It's all about your certainty. So it's not because the pastor is somehow super powerful or somehow like something like this. It is purely the office that the Lord has set up to bring, to deliver his word of forgiveness for your certainty that you would know when my sins are forgiven on earth, they're forgiven even in heaven. And that's why like in the private confession absolution, right? uh, After there's like, there's general confession and then there's like, is there anything particular that's troubling you? And there's confession that's made. And then the pastor says, do you believe that the forgiveness that I speak is not my forgiveness, but God's forgiveness? Yes. Then so be it. And there's forgiveness given. So this is recognition that God, God has sent out his apostles to speak his word. And it comes with the same authority of God himself. Any questions? Tom? I'm always scared of Tom's questions because he always points out holes in my logic. In verse 12, is he saying things won't be as bad for Sodom because the kingdom of God was never preached there, so they didn't have the opportunity to hear and believe? These villages here have rejected. Yeah, I think, I would, I would think that it has to do in, in that, well, partly what you're saying, but also, I mean, Sodom is always associated with yeah, just the, this burning down sul- the sulfur from heaven destruction. So it's like the worst of the worst kind of destruction and associated with those great sins. 
So it's like, it's often thought, if you're having to name like the worst place, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And so he's emphasizing how bad it is for those who are just rejecting the gospel outright. Not that it's, I guess it's just emphasizing how much, how much worse the, the judgment will be. Not because Sodom necessarily didn't get a chance to hear the gospel or something. We'd argue that they did, because Lot was there. Right? Anything else? So we didn't make it quite through to 10. What's nice is we kind of, these were kind of some, some stepping stones we had to get to. I, reason, I picked this Bible study on Luke because Luke's got all these like really awesome parables, all these really fun, juicy ones. And the, one of the first ones that's coming up here is the parable of the, um, make sure it's the right one. I think it's the Good Samaritan is the first one. Yeah, Good Samaritan, verse 25. So uh, I'll, be on, I'll be gone the next two weeks. Pastor Schumacher will be in here. Um, and then we'll pick up on verse 17, the return of the 72, and hopefully even jump into the Good Samaritan if we're, it's not going to happen. We'll get, we'll get, we'll get there. Uh, the Christ is risen. 